Chapter Ten of Uller Uprising. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Acacia Wood. Uller Uprising by H. Beam Piper. Chapter Ten: The Geek Luftwaffe and the Kragen Airlift. At 0245, an attack developed on the northwestern corner of the reservation, in the direction of the explosives magazines. It turned out to be relatively trivial. Remnants of the mob that had been broken up by air attack on the road had gotten together and were making rushes in small bands, keeping well spread out. Beating them off took considerable ammunition, but it was accomplished with negligible casualties to the defenders. They finally stopped coming around daylight. In the meantime, Themistocles Mizangui called from Kunkruk, appearing in the screen with his left arm in a freshly white sling. "'What the hell have you been doing to yourself?' von Schlichten wanted to know. "'Crossbow bolt about half an hour ago. A couple of inches lower, and acting Brigadier General Colbert would have been talking to you now, instead of me. Lucky it didn't have a nitro capsule on the end. How are you making out? Have Kankad's people started coming in yet?' Oh, yes, about six hundred of them have gotten in already in the damnest collection of vehicles you ever saw. Kincaid must be using every scrap of contragravity he has. It's a regular airborne Dunkirk in reverse. Kincaid sent word that he's coming here in person as soon as he has things organized at his place. And the geeks have scraped together an air force of their own. Farm lorries, air cars, that sort of thing. And they're using them to bomb us here and at the mainland farm, mostly with nitroglycerin. We've shot down about twenty of them, but they're still coming. They tried a boat attack across the channel. That's how I got this. We've been doing some bombing ourselves. We made a down payment for Eric Blount and Hendrick Lemoyne. Took a fifty-ton tank off a fuel lorry, fitted it with a detonator, filled it with thermoconcentrate, and ferried it over on the Elmoran and dumped it on the Keegarkan embassy. Must have landed in the middle of the central court. In about fifteen seconds, flames were coming out every window in the place. His face became less jovial. "'We had something pretty bad happen here, too,' he said. "'That concrete Fincible's rabble of Prince Jazard's mutinied, along with the others. They got into the hospital and butchered everybody in the place, patients and staff. The Cragans got there too late to save anybody, but they wiped out the Fincibles. Jazard himself was the only one they took alive, and he didn't stay that way very long. "'How are you making out with your civil administration crowd?' Mazongui grimaced. I haven't had to put any of them under actual arrest so far, though we've had to keep Berman away from the communications equipment by force. He wanted to call you up and chew you out for not evacuating everybody in the north to Kunkruk. Is he crazy? No, just scared. He says you're going to get everybody on Uller massacred by detail when you could save Kunkruk by bringing them all here. You tell him I'm going to hold this planet, not just one city. Tell him I have a sense of my duty to the company and its stockholders, if he hasn't. Put it in those terms, and he may understand you. Yes, I'll try that out on Meyerstein, too. He's in a hell of a state about the losses the banking cartel are taking on this deal. Well, I'll call you when there's anything new. By 0330, it was daylight. The attacks against the northwest corner of the perimeter stopped entirely. Wallingsby had the three hundred old Skilkin laborers at work. He had gathered up all the tarpaulin he could find, and had the two sewing machines in the tent-maker's shop running on sandbags. Jules Cavini, to von Schlichten's agreeable surprise, had taken hold of his ARP assignment, and was doing an efficient job in organizing for firefighting, damage control, and first aid. 
Colonel Jarman had his air jeeps and combat cars working in ever-widening circles over the countryside, shooting up everything in sight that even looked like contragravity equipment. Some of these patrols had to be recalled around 10.30, when sporadic nuisance sniping began from the side of the mountain to the west. And, along with everything else, Paula Quinton managed, along with her other work, to get a complete digest prepared of the situation elsewhere in the Terran-occupied parts of the planet. The situation at Kincrook was brightening steadily. The second wave of Kincad's improvised airlift, reinforced by contragravity from Kincrook, had come in. There were now close to 2,000 fresh Kragans on Grongrok Island, and the mainland farms Kincad himself with them. The Aldebaran had reached Kincad's town and was loading another thousand Kragans. There was nothing more from Keegark. A message from Colonel McKinnon had come in at dawn, to the effect that the geeks had penetrated his last defenses, and that he was about to blow up the residency, thereafter Kriegark went off the air. By 0730, the Northern Star had landed the regiment murderers, armed with first-quality Terran infantry rifles and a few machine-guns and bazookas, at the palace at Krink, and by 0845 she had returned with another regiment, the Geofeeders. The three-street lane connecting the palace and the residency had been widened to six, and then to eight, Guido Carmesini's at Grank was still at uneasy peace with King Eukirk, who was still undecided whether the rebels or the company were going to be eventual victors, and afraid to take any irrevocable steps in either direction. Eight men and four women, the survivors of a trading station on the eastern shore of Takad Sea, reached Konkruk in Alori, another trading station on the south shore, reported by telecast that the natives there had refused to rise against them, and had crucified five of Arkid's disciples, who had come among them preaching Zenid Sudabit. At 1100, Paula Quentin and Barney Mordkovitz virtually ordered him to get some sleep. He went to his quarters at Company House, downed a spaceship captain-sized drink of honey rum, and slept until 1600. As he dressed and shaved, he could hear, through the open window, the slow sputter of small arms fire, punctuated by the occasional whomp, whomp, whomp of 40-millimeter autocannon or the hammering of a machine gun. Returning to his command post at the telecast station, the terrain board showed that the perimeter of defense had been pushed out in a bulge at the northwest corner, the TV screen pictured a crude breastwork of petrified tree trunks, sandbags, mining machinery, packing cases, and odds and ends, upon which Wallingsby's native laborers were working under guard, while a skirmish line of Kragans had been thrown out another four or five hundred yards, and were exchanging pot shots with Skilkins on the gullied hillside. "'Where's Colonel Quinton?' he asked. "'She ought to be taking a turn in the sack now.' "'She's taken one. "'Major Falkenberg, who had commanded the action at the native troop barracks and the labor camp, the night before, told him. "'General Mordkovitz chased her off to bed a couple of hours ago, called me in to take her place, and then went out to replace me. "'Colonel Gilliford's in the hospital, got hit about thirteen hundred. "'They're afraid he's going to lose a leg.' "'That's a bloody shame,' he pointed to the northwest corner of the perimeter on the screen. "'Whose idea was that?' he asked. It's a good one. I ought to have thought of it myself. You knew adjutant, Falkenberg grinned. She asked somebody what those big domes up there were. When they told her there were ten thousand tons of thermoconcentrate, five thousand tons of blasting explosives, and five tons of plutonium under them, she damn near fainted, and then she ordered that right away. More reports came in. The entire garrison of the small residency at Quirk, the most northern of the eastern shore free cities, had arrived at Kincad's town in two hundred foot contragravity scows and five air cars. Two of the air cars arrived half an hour behind the rest of the refugee flotilla, having turned off at Keegark to pay their respects to King Orgzild. 
They reported to Keegark Residency in ruins, its central buildings vanished in a huge crater, the Jan Smuts and the Christian DeWitt were still in the company docks, both apparently damaged by the blast which had destroyed the residency. One of the air cars had rocketed and machine-gunned some Keegarkans who appeared to be trying to repair them. The other blew up King Orgild's nitroglycerin plant. Von Schlichten called Konkruk and ordered a bombing mission against Keegark organized to make sure the two ships stayed out of service. The Northern Star was still bringing loyal troops into Krink. King Jonkvank, whom von Schlichten called, was highly elated. We are killing traitors wherever we find them, he exulted. The city is yellow with their blood. Their heads are piled everywhere. How is it with you at Skilk? We have killed many also, von Schlichten boasted, and tonight we will kill more. We are preparing bombs of great destruction, which we will rain down upon Skilk until there is not one stone left up on another, or one infant of a day's age left alive. Jonkvek reacted as he was intended to. Oh, no, General, don't do all that, he exclaimed. You promised me that I should have Skilk on the word of a Terran. Are you going to give me a city of ruins and corpses? Ruins are no good to anybody, and I am not a geel to eat corpses. Von Schlichten shrugged. When you are strong, you can flog your enemies with a whip. When you are weak, all you can do is kill them. If I had five thousand more troops here... Oh, I will send troops as soon as I can, Jonkvank hastened to promise. All my best regiments, the murderers, the geel-feeders, the corpse-reapers, the devastators, the fear-makers. But now that we have stopped this sinful rebellion here, I can't take chances that it will break out again as soon as I strip the city of troops. Von Schlichten nodded. Jonkvank's argument made sense. He would have taken a similar position himself. Well, get as many as you can over here as soon as possible, he said. We'll try to do as little damage to Skilk as we can, but... At 18.30, Paula joined him for her breakfast, while he sat in front of the big screen eating his dinner. There had been light ground action along the southern end of the perimeter, King Firkhead's regulars, reinforced by Zerk tribesmen and levies of townspeople, all of whom seemed to have firearms, were filtering in through the ruins of the labor camp and the wreckage of the equipment park, and there was renewed sniping from the mountainside. The long afternoon of the northern autumn dragged on. Finally, at 2200, the sun set, and it was not fully dark for another hour. For some time there was an ominous quiet, and then, at 0030, the enemy began attacking in force, driving herds of livestock, lumbering six-legged brutes built bred by the North Ullerans for food, to test the defenses for electrified wires and landmines. Most of these were shot down or blown up, but a few got as far as the wire, which, by now, had been strung and electrified completely around the perimeter. Behind them came parties of Skilkin regulars with long-handled insulated cutters. A couple of cuts were made in the wire, and a section of it went dead. The line, at this point, had been rather thinly held. The defenders immediately called for air support, and Jarman ordered fifteen of his remaining twenty airjeeps and five combat cars into the fight. No sooner were they committed than the radar on the commercial airport control tower picked up air vehicles approaching from the north, and the air raid sirens began howling and the searchlights went on. As a protection from the sudden fury of the summer and winter gales, the buildings were all low, thick-walled, and provided with steel doors and window shutters, which were electrically operated and centrally controlled. These slammed shut in every occupied building. The contragravity which had been sent to support the ground defense at the south side of the reservation turned to meet this new threat, and everything else available, including the four heavy air tanks, lifted up. Meanwhile, guns began firing from the ground and from rooftops. There had been four air-cars, ordinary passenger vehicles equipped with machine-guns on improvised mounts, and ten big lorries converted into bombers in the attack. 
all the lorries and all but one of the makeshift fighter escorts were shot down but not before explosive and thermoconcentrate bombs were dumped all over the place one lorry emptied its load of thermoconcentrate bombs on the control building at the airport starting a raging fire and putting the radar out of commission a repair shop at the ordnance depot was set on fire and a quantity of small arms and machine-gun ammunition piled outside for transportation to the outer defenses blew up an explosive bomb landed on the roof of the building between company house and the telecast station blowing a hole in the roof and demolishing the upper floor and another load of thermoconcentrate missing the power plant set fire to the dry grass between it and the ruins of the native troops barracks before the air attack had been broken up the soldiers of king Firkhead and their irregular supporters were swarming through the dead section of wire they had four or five big farm tractors nuclear-powered but unequipped with contragravity generators which they were using like ground tanks of the first century this attack penetrated to the middle of the reservation before it was stopped and the attackers either killed or driven out for the first time since daybreak the red and yellow lights came on around the power plant as soon as the combined air and ground attack was beaten off von schlichten ordered all his available contragravity up flying patrols around the reservation and retaliatory bombing missions against skilk and began bombarding the city with his ninety millimeter guns a number of fires broke out and about o two hundred a huge expanding globe of orange-red flames soared up from the city there goes for Ked's thermoconcentrate stock he said to paula who was standing beside him in front of the screen half an hour later he discovered that he had been overly optimistic much of the enemy's supply of terran thermoconcentrate had been destroyed but enough remained to pelt the reservation and the company buildings with incendiaries when a second and more severe air attack developed consisting of forty or fifty makeshift lorry bombers and fifteen air cars the previous attack von schlichten had viewed in the screen at the telecast station it was his questionable good fortune to observe the second one directly having been out inspecting the defences around the ordnance depot at the time like the first the second air attack was beaten off or more exactly down most of the enemy contragravity was destroyed at least two dozen vehicles crashed inside the reservation as in the first instance there was simultaneous ground attack from the southern side with a demonstration attack at the north side for a while von schlichten found himself fighting hand to hand first with his pistol and then when his ammunition was gone with a picked-up rifle and bayonet it was full daylight before the last of the attackers was either killed or driven out five minutes later while he was reloading his pistol clips with salvaged cartridges the northern star came bulking over the mountains from the west End of chapter ten recording by acacia wood